Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details. The Future Proof Podcast from News Talk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof the Podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thanks for subscribing, downloading, and rating as always. If you'd like to contact us on the program, you can email us science at newstalk.com. We get to those at the end of the podcast next week. Coming up on this week's show, fascinating interview with a man called Professor Doctor, um, who he obviously knew what he was going to do when he began life. He is going to talk to us about blood, one of the most fascinating substances on our planet. Um, he's going to talk about what it's made of, what it does, but most importantly, what might happen if we could synthesize it in a lab, because it's not as far away as you might think. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us via the internet is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and double Dr. Lara Duncan. Uh, good to have you back. You're both very welcome. Our first story. It's an asteroid, sir. How big are we talking? Sir, our best estimate is 97.6 billion. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. Yes, sir. Dan, we didn't see this thing coming. Well, our object collision budget's a million dollars. That allows us to track about 3% of the sky. And begging your pardon, sir, but it's a big-ass sky. And the ones this morning? Uh, Those are nothing. Uh, They're the size of basketballs and uh, Volkswagens, things like that. Is this going to hit us? We're efforting that as we speak, sir. Shane, a really exciting mission to try and snooker ball an asteroid. Yeah, absolutely. This is Armageddon in real life. NASA are doing a test mission to deflect an asteroid. It is a test. This is not really happening. Um, There isn't an asteroid hurtling toward the Earth, at least not that we know of. Um, And they have used a SpaceX rocket and put on top of it a dart. Now, that's not the Dublin train. Instead, it's a... (laughs) <laughs> it's a double asteroid redirection test, D-A-R-T. And so they blast it off. Um, this thing is going to travel 11 million kilometers, and then it's going to crash into a tiny little moonlet called Dimorphos. Um, and it's going to do so at uh, 2,100 kilometers an hour. And it's going to smack it with something with the mass of a small car, so about a ton. And they reckon that's a sufficient amount of kinetic energy to deflect the asteroid from its course and um, they'll have a camera nearby very conveniently to um, to look at how much of a deflection there is and so this is a test um, in order to see can we adjust the orbit of these rocks that are out in the solar system that could potentially cause the earth uh, and those on it harm. Um, So this deflection if it's not heading towards earth is there any chance that they might deflect it to us instead of away from us? Uh, 
Well, no, I suppose they would have figured that out, right? <laughs> so, but I, I hesitated there because I was like, I really hope somebody's thought of that. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I highly, highly doubt it because like this thing is on a path already. And so they're, they're only going to be able to move it a tiny amount. And so um, they're not going to be able to move it sufficiently so that it would come hurtling toward us. That would right. be a rather massive adjustment. And, and if this uh, asteroid were pointing towards us, would it be like one of those ones we'd need to worry about? Or are we just starting with baby steps before we try and like divert an entire planet or something? Yes. Yeah, so it is very, very small in uh, like relative to the one that wiped out the dinosaurs 60 something million years ago. So this one's a baby. But they're starting with something, uh, sorry, Lars just corrected me. It's 65 million years ago. Thank you, Lars. It is great to have you back. So uh, <laughs> so this one is small and they're starting with things that are small just to see will it work as a proof of concept. Sounds very cool. And, and it's great to see that we might actually get to, to witness this on camera. Our second story, Lara, has to do with an advance in HIV medicine um, that could totally change how we treat this disease. I think this is absolutely incredible news. I think it's, um, people say this all the time, but for HIV, um, for patients who suffer with HIV, it's a, it's a real game changer. At the moment, the way it works is that people take um, antiretroviral medication in the form of tablets, and they have to take these every day. A lot of them can be combined into one or two tablets, and it's a number of medications into one. But it's very difficult. Um, it's difficult anyway to take medicine every day. It's very difficult with the social stigma that goes around HIV as well. Um, so for a number of reasons, it's very hard to take medicine every day. But if you do take it every day, in most cases, it reduces your viral load to so low that it's actually impossible to pass on the disease. And as we know, obviously, HIV can't be cured. So the way to get it, get rid of it eventually is to stop it being passed on. This new technology that's now been recommended by NICE, which is the, the um, National Institute over in the UK, where we take all our recommendations in Ireland as well, is an injectable HIV medication. And the most amazing part about it is it's only every two months. So it's only six times a year instead of 365 times a year. And it will hugely increase the amount of people that are compliant with their medication. The problem with lack of compliance, so people take their medicine and then they stop taking it for a few months because they run out or whatever reason, the HIV it, the virus inside them then becomes resistant to that medication. That one then gets passed on. And then the next person is resistant to the medication. So it's a huge problem. But if you only have to take it six times a year, six times a year, it is absolutely a game changer. People might go into clinics to do it. They might do it at home. There might be all sorts of different varieties, but it's just going to change it completely if you can bring this out. So there's in the UK at the moment where they're starting this, there's about 100,000 people who have HIV and they're going to start with about 13,000 people and see how it goes. But this could really, in the long term, just completely stop transmission of HIV if, if, it, if it increases compliance. So um, so what you're saying is if, if people adhere to this six injections uh, a year, you, you could essentially have a disease that's completely managed and very difficult to transmit to another person, which means over time will cure HIV. That would be the hope. Now, I mean, obviously, there are already strains of HIV that are resistant to these. It's actually two drugs. It's called um, cabotegravir and rilpivirin. So it would be two injections at the same time every two months. And there are strains that have already shown resistance to these. So, you know, th those would be obviously a problem, but there are other medications that can be used on certain strains. 
But for the people that have, you know, good viral load reduction with these drugs, it would be absolutely amazing because I've, I've sat in HIV clinics where I've seen dozens of patients come through. And very often you say to them, are you taking the medications? And there's lots of different reasons why people don't and very normal reasons. And, you know, it's not that they don't care. It's that they ran out of, you know, the ability to get there. They couldn't take them for all sorts of different reasons. So if you can just do this every two months, it, it makes such a difference to people's lives. Shane, our third story has to do not with an asteroid, but a meteorite impact. Yeah, absolutely. Meteorites being things from outer space that strike the Earth's surface. And um, this is a, a new way to identify ancient meteorite sites. And that's important because it tells us a lot about uh, the early Earth and potentially how life may have started on Earth. Um, so... Uh, they've done so by looking for the effects uh, on the ground uh, at ancient meteorite sites. They went to a well-known impact place in the United States and they looked at the geology um, of the ground below. And in particular, they looked at the, um, the sort of natural remnant magnetism that's there. Um, so everywhere on the Earth has natural remnant magnetism of around two to three percent. What is magnetism? That? Yeah, so it's it's basically just that there's a sufficient amount of magnetic material in those rocks to get to 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 have uh, a magnetic effect. And magnetism is a force uh, that's a result of the movement of uh, spinning electrical charges in atoms and molecules. So if you use something like iron, the way that the electrons within iron are set up will cause it to create a magnetic force. But you can disrupt that, and that's what the 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 bombardment of the meteorite did. It turned the uh, the rocks into something called a plasma. So it stripped the atoms and molecules of their electrons and it changed its magnetic property. And that has remained there um, in the billions of years since the impact. So instead of having a background noise of around 2 to 3%, like anywhere on the Earth would have, the sites uh, where asteroids have hit will have negligible um uh, magnetism and so you're able to go and look for places where there's no magnetic signal and that could be the first clue that uh, a geologist is looking for for an ancient uh, meteorite strike site i know this is a stupid question but why not look for a bloody great hole in the ground yeah well that's that is another thing you'd look for but if they're very very old and they're in places where there's been a lot of erosion that not might be there anymore Right. OK, I suppose that makes sense. Laura, our final story is an update to how many steps we need to take a day to be fit and healthy. So did you guys know that, you know, the 10,000 steps, that's very famous that everybody says you have to do your 10,000 steps a day to stay fit and healthy. Yeah. That apparently came around in the 1960s as a marketing tool for a Japanese company that had brought out a step meter that measured 10,000 steps. What? And they have made this now international from, from starting from the 1960s for the last 50 years. Everyone now believes that you have to do 10,000 steps a day to stay healthy. And I suppose it's very important that we do activity, but the exact level of activity is actually a bit more debatable than that. And this uh, new research that came out and published in the JAMA Network Open, um, it looks back at over 2,000 people. Now, I, I need to preface this with, this is a crap study, all right? But <laughs> I think the outcome from it is very interesting. So what they did was back in um, 2005 and 2006, they took over 2,000 people and for one week, they put a pedometer on them, on their waist to measure how many steps they took a day. Um, and then they took the pedometer off and then they looked at them for the next 12 years to see if they died. So this is why I think it's a crap study. They measured one week of their lives. 
And the people knew they had the pedometer on them. So it's very hard to know whether or not they were doing more or less steps. But anyway, that's the... How does that get published as a paper? So it's a very, very big, part of a very big long-term study called the Cardia study. And it was just a very small subsection of it. So, I mean, look, if we take that as the basic premise that I think it's a crap paper, but it's an interesting outcome. What they found was that everybody who did over 7,000 steps was much more likely to still be alive 12 years later. So of the 2,100 people, 72 people were dead. And the vast, vast majority of them were in the group that took less than 7,000 steps. So they're saying there's a 50 to 70% reduction in all-cause mortality by doing over 7,000 steps. But there was no extra increase when you got to 10,000. So it's, it's, it's saying that... I suppose, do at least 7,000 steps and it's going to potentially reduce your all-cause mortality, which just means you're dead. So 72 people were dead. The vast majority of them were doing very little exercise. Now, this is... Is this, I mean, like, what ages are we talking about? Like, you so wouldn't say that for a 15-year-old. The people in the study in 2005 and six were between 38 and 50. So then, obviously, when they finished the study in 2018, they were yeah, 12 years older. Someone else do the maths for me quickly, but they were that much older. Um, so these were middle-aged people, 38 to 50, who they followed for the next 12 years or so. But it's really important to note that the point of this is an achievable goal. So this isn't for people who are doing 15,000 steps a day to say, go down to seven. No one's suggesting that for a second because there's all sorts of mental health benefits, it, things like reducing your risk of diabetes, heart disease, all these things. But it's for the people who are doing, say, 4,000 steps and they're saying, I can't get to 10. I'm just going to sit on the couch. It's for those people to just say, you know what, actually get up, just do 3,000 more. It's not that hard to get to and then go back and sit on the couch. So it's it's about achievable goals rather than trying to dissuade people who are doing lots of exercise from doing their 10,000 steps. But again, pretty crap science, I think. Um, yeah, but actually, uh, what's really surprising is you're talking about 38 to 50. I thought you would be talking about 65 plus. If you're someone who measures your steps every day, let me know. Uh, and if you're not, also let me know. I'd love to know what proportion of people actually do count their steps on their watch or otherwise. Do yeah. you both? Do, do you, Danny? I, uh, no, not really. Since since lockdown, I do because I, yeah. I, I would find that I have to make much more effort to do exercise now than stuff that just happens sort of naturally. Yeah, that's true. I, I do sit around quite a bit. Part of the job, though, you know. It's what hard not to, do. hard not to. But great to have you back, Double Dr. Lara Dungan and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. After the break, we're going to be speaking to Professor Alan Doctor. That's actually his name. He is working on synthesizing human blood, and that could change the way we do medicine in quite a significant way. Stay with us. Now, this is a topic I have wanted to cover for years, but have been waiting to find the right guest. It's the subject of blood, that fascinating liquid life force that is so complicated and yet at the same time so simple. What is it? What does it do? And can we synthesize it in the lab? To walk us through all of this is Alan Doctor. He is a director of the Center for Blood Oxygen Transport and Hemostasis. Uh, He joins me now. Welcome to the program, Alan. Let's start off with the simple and obvious question. What is blood? Is that a stupid question? Uh, Well, not so stupid. Uh, It's actually uh, a very complicated uh, fluid. And in fact, we should think about it as as a liquid organ. Um, It includes the bone marrow and uh, what we, as well as what we normally think of as the, the, 
the red liquid that's flowing through our circulatory system. And it's composed of uh, cells and water uh, that we call plasma. It's about half and half. And the functions that it has uh, relate mainly to um, moving uh, oxygen and nutrients uh, from their sources, the lungs or the intestine or from stores in our liver and fat to cells that are alive and, and burning uh, oxygen and glucose. And the blood is also uh, distributing part of our immune system. So part of our immune system is uh, simply patrolling, always looking for new invaders um, in their cells, as well as antibodies that are elements of the immune system. Um, blood also removes toxins or metabolic waste products from cells and takes them to the uh, organs that excrete, so kidney and liver. Both of those are cleaning uh, the blood as well. Finally, blood has the ability to um, sort of self-repair in a sense. If the vascular uh, system gets breached and you get cut and you start leaking blood, uh, blood can form a clot and uh, staunch the bleeding until the, uh, the repair takes place. Where is blood made exactly? Uh, blood is made in our bones, in the bone marrow. So it's, it's obviously very important. And uh, so it's a very safe place in our body, um, inside the bones. Um, and uh, the bone marrow is doing uh, something pretty amazing. I'd, I have to say that the blood cells are the most abundant cells in our body. They are about 85% of all of our cells, um, even though they're only a small part of our weight because they're not that heavy. But we have about 25 trillion red blood cells that are circulating in the average adult. And our bone marrow is making about one and a half million red cells every second. And so there's millions and millions of red cells being made while you and I are talking. We make about 200 billion red cells a day because we clear about 1% of the circulating mass every day. So they have to be continually refreshed. Wow. Um, and uh, we make an average adult uh, who lives uh, about 70, 75 years, will make about 250 kilos of red cells over their lifetime. So. There's an incredible amount of uh, our energy and nutrition budget is devoted to uh, keeping this tissue fresh. But but we only have about five liters in our bodies at any one time. Does that does that change depending on the size of someone? Like would Sha Shaquille O'Neal, for example, would he have ten liters of blood in his body, or how does that work? Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, we have uh, it's it's scaled by really your lean body mass. So um, taller people um, who are relatively fit, um, you they have the same proportional amount of blood uh, per mass as a smaller person. But as we um, uh, maybe less fit, you know, people who uh, start to get a little um, corpulent, let's say, uh, the, the purport, you don't increase the amount of blood proportionally in the same way. Okay, so um, as, we, as we increase in, in weight, um, we don't increase in blood. No. Um, okay, so um, most people would imagine blood as being a red liquid, but that is not always the case, isn't that right? Right. Your blood is red because of the way that the hemoglobin protein absorbs light, and it's really the iron in hemoglobin that's changing uh, you know, the, the, 
the light. And so when iron is, has oxygen, uh, what we call attached to it, it's bright red. Um, when it doesn't, it turns uh, dark. And in fact, it has a bluish color. So that's why the blood in your veins looks bluish. And as soon as you get cut and it gets exposed to air, um, it is uh, red. So when it's flowing in your arteries, it's red and in, in veins, it's blue. And in fact, when you open the body, you can tell the arteries are red and veins are blue. When it oxidizes, in fact, our blood can rust. Um, that's called met hemoglobinemia. It turns brown, just like rust. Um, so our, our blood can rust? Yes, believe it or not. So uh, there are certain drugs um, and conditions that cause the iron to oxidize. And so water plus oxygen and iron is rust. And the iron in your red blood cells can rust and it doesn't carry oxygen. And you can get quite sick with that. Um, it's a special condition. And uh, that blood looks chocolate brown um, when, wow. uh, when, it's, when it's rusted. So we have red blood, blue blood, brown blood. Are there any other colors our blood can be? Uh, no, no, just those, those three colors. Although other organisms have blue and green blood, um, so they have different hemoglobins that have different colors. But um, mammals, it's just those three. So what about synthetic blood? Is that ever a possibility? Because at the moment, we're constantly hearing of transfusion services desperate for people to donate their blood. Is it ever possible that we might be able to just synthesize it and, and do away with needs for, for donations? Well, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dream that's close to realization. Uh, we're not wow. there yet. So uh, people have been trying to do this for a very long time. Um, maybe 60 to 80 years. And um, it started with an attempt to just isolate the hemoglobin from red cells. Um, and, and let me back up a little bit and explain why we want to do this. So blood itself, it's hard to remember, is alive. So the red blood cells in our blood are living. It's living tissue. And when you take it out of the body, you have to store it in a way that sort of keeps it alive. And it has a very short shelf life. So when it's in the refrigerator, you can only keep it for 45 days before it's unusable. And even then, you know, there's some debate about whether it's just as good at 45 days or really when it's fresh. And that's when it's in a blood bank. When you take it out, um, it has to be used within four hours. And so it's not practical to administer blood either in resource limited settings or at the point of injury. So there's lots of people who get injured and they um, really exsanguinate or bleed to death before they can get into the hospital. In the US alone, there's about 20,000 people a year who just bleed to death before we can get them to where we can administer blood. And of mm -hmm. course, this is a big problem with the military. And then uh, in very special circumstances, like on cruise ships or on the space station or a mission to Mars, where actual, you know, the way we do transfusion isn't gonna work. And so people have been looking for ways to make blood shelf stable uh, and also to avoid the, all the problems with cross-matching. So we're looking for shelf stable universal donor blood meaning it can be at ambient 
uh, temperature for extended periods and you don't have to cross match. So people tried to take it out of the red blood cell, but uh, the reason it's in red blood cells is because it's a hemoglobin is toxic if it's just free in plasma and it will produce heart attacks and stroke and kidney injury and so on. And so a lot of effort was spent trying to chemically modify what I'm calling free hemoglobin so that it's safe in blood and it just simply didn't work. And in about 2008, the FDA shut down all the human trials for blood substitutes that were based on, on this technology. So the next step was to try to encapsulate it and make an artificial cell. And there are some problems uh, with the safety of the membrane and so on. And it wasn't until a few years ago where um, there were several breakthroughs in synthetic chemistry and what, what you may have heard of nanomedicine, the ability to make nanoparticles which have drugs in them mm. that allow us to take the hemoglobin out of a red cell and veil it inside a synthetic membrane that imitates the behavior of a real biologic membrane and it can be freeze dried. And in fact, our laboratory has done this and we have uh, developed an artificial red blood cell that we call erythromer, which is after an erythrocyte. And it's about a 50th the size of a regular red blood cell, but it has human hemoglobin in it and some other small molecules that modify its behavior and prevent it from rusting. Um, and it's uh, covered in a synthetic uh, membrane that imitates the performance of a human red cell membrane and is silent as far as the immune system goes. So it's a universal donor for all people. And in fact, it can be given across species. So we've given it to multiple species, not humans yet, but that's hopefully coming soon. And it can be freeze dried. So it's a dried red powder that can be stable on the shelf for years. And you just mix it with water at the point of care when a medic wants to use it, shake it, and you've got instant blood. I'm, and I'm sorry, I, I need to stop you there. Yeah, You're telling me you have synthesized a universal red blood cell that can stay in a shelf for two to three years, mix with water, and then it, it works in animals? Yes. In fact, it's it's like, you know, freeze dried like instant coffee or tang. It's it's uh, dehydrated, but um, because all the water is removed and the way it's um, stored or prepared is a freeze dried substance. It has a additional small molecules that we call cryoprotectants that allow this process, which is called lyophilization. Um, and then you rehydrate it and within Literally within seconds, it, it reconstitutes as, as blood and can be transfused. So it's not blood though, right? You haven't been able to replace blood, blood cells. Now these blood cells, can they transport oxygen in these mice and, Absol and rabbits? Ab absolutely. In fact, we can outperform a red blood cell because we can manipulate the oxygen affinity so that we can increase the efficiency that it captures in the lung and increase the efficiency that it releases oxygen in cells. So in fact, you only need about half as much or maybe about two thirds to half as much hemoglobin in the artificial red cells to move the same amount of oxygen that you would move with red blood cells. 
so we can um, keep the, that's a good safety feature, so we can keep the dose limited. But you raise a good point, it doesn't have the clotting function, so we are working with other partners that have freeze-dried plasma and freeze-dried or, or made synthetic platelets that can be freeze-dried so that in fact we can recompose uh, whole blood, the, the performance of whole blood from freeze-dried components um, so that we can not only resuscitate somebody so that we can reestablish oxygen transport, but we can do it in a way that helps the bleeding stop, which is obviously the reason they need the blood in the first place is because they're bleeding. That is so exciting. Uh, I, I, I can't believe we're this close to, to something like that. Obviously, trials in humans are not yet there. Is that the same for platelets and plasma, or have they been tested to work in, in human trials? Because it sounds like you're really close to synthetic blood. Yes. So we are maybe two to three at the most years away from trying uh, the red cells in humans. We've submitted our first uh, package to the U.S. FDA, uh, and there's a multi-step process to getting permission to start testing in what they call first-in-man trials. The uh, platelets are just behind us, so they are maybe a little bit longer before those are tested in humans, but the plasma is already in humans, so that's available now, and there are multiple versions of freeze-dried plasma that um, have already been deployed and used by the U.S. military. Okay, so this is the million-dollar question. How expensive is it to generate synthetic blood? Um, well, believe it or not, um, we are expecting a unit of the artificial red cells to cost about the same as a unit, what we call the fully loaded cost of a unit of plain regular red cells. So when you buy a unit of red cells or as a patient, um, you pay about $500 or a little more for a unit of blood, at least in the U.S., now, there's additional costs that are associated with that, the cost to collect it, the cost for the system to collect it, to process it, to store it, to administer it. It's much more expensive. In fact, the fully loaded cost is about three times the actual cost of the unit, about $1,500 a unit to administer um, a unit of blood. And so we expect the, that cost to be very similar for the artificial red cells and um, the fully loaded cost of a regular unit. Oh my God, that is just, that's incredible to hear. So indulge me before I let you go, Alan, on um, a question that was sparked by Ray Kurzweil, um, the sort of technology czar for Google for a while. Uh, he posited that in the future, we would be able to develop blood that would, as you, you say, outperform regular blood in delivering oxygen to to the cells, and and he suggested that that may it may allow people to run at much faster speeds, and also potentially to to hold their breath and, and stay underwater for for much longer. Is that total science fiction still, or do you think that that theoretically might be possible? Oh no, that's absolutely possible, and um, and we um, and not just. You know, it, it, it's just not just for performance, but if somebody has respiratory failure and they their lung is not working as well, then we can use blood that can more effectively capture oxygen from a weak lung, or we could 
if the heart is not working as well, then we can use uh, um, blood that is more effective at releasing the oxygen to tissue. But we can also make artificial red cells that can do things that our own red cells can't do. So we could make red cells, for example, that could metabolize glucose. Um, so it could be part of a, a treatment for diabetes or treatment to replace an enzyme that's missing. So we could, we could use, um, I mean, one really uh, exciting area is that this can be a platform for a whole new type of therapy so that the red blood cells, the nanoparticles would be circulating and we could insert different enzymes and uh, drugs inside the red cells to do novel things that are so that they just stay in our bloodstream and, and uh, treat other illnesses. So it's not just oxygen transport. It can, it can, we can go beyond the, that, even that category of therapy. Now, obviously we're not there yet. We're just trying to get the oxygen transport box ticked. And uh, once we do that, this may be a whole new platform for other types of therapy. Well, well I told you I was looking forward to this interview and, and, and this is why. Absolutely amazing stuff. Um, Professor Alan Doctor uh, from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Enjoyed talking with you. I don't know about you, but I thought that was absolutely just so exciting to speak to Professor Doctor there about uh, his work and, and the potential for this uh, idea. Love to hear your feelings on it, particularly if you are someone who has a rare blood group. Uh, what is it like to be you? You can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Now, just to briefly catch up on some of your comments and uh, text last week, we had uh, Professor Neil deGrasse Tyson on the program and um, lots of people uh, really enjoyed it. Colin and Sinead, um, Sinead McGrath said, love to could listen to him all day. He has such infectious enthusiasm. Uh, Abe McGrath says, um, just listen to your interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Brilliant as usual. Um, really, really interesting and, and fascinating to find out how uh, he prepares for interviews. Yeah, uh, he said he does research on how long he gets to speak in in um, in interviews, but also uh, how long is it before he's interrupted? It's really, really um, in-depth preparation he seems to do for his uh, on-screen appearances, which obviously pay off really well. But we did have a comment from someone who wasn't that impressed. Um, I asked Neil if if... if you know, these stars burn up all their fuel and explode. Surely the immense gravity pulls all of that matter together again. And just the pressure of all that starts to to form new fuel. And he said, no, uh, essentially it's burnt ash and it's useless. Um, and you, you're left with sort of a stellar corpse and eventually the entire universe goes cold. Greg says, surely the stellar corpse is composed of atoms. So why can't these clump together over trillions of years or even feed into another Big Bang? So the multiverse would be just a cyclical thing. Separate, of course, from what the Bible says, uh, does Neil deGrasse Tyson think we're all idiots? What's his idea of a possible God? It's all probably wrong. So, <laughs> so Greg's, Greg's really in on the science and then just pivots to... Um, to uh, a, a, a biblical question. I wonder, is that because we tend to not respond to a huge amount of, of the um, the uh, where is God in all of these questions on, on the podcast? Is it, it Was it a, a switcheroo in the middle, Greg? Well, I, I, you're, you're right. I, I don't know why that matter can't fuse again or, or, or burn again, but uh, apparently it won't. And eventually the, the universe will just go cold. 
Um, but I don't I don't know what his idea of a possible God is. I, I don't think he believes in a God. I think he's an atheist like myself, Greg. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to producer Aidan McCovey, Simon Keane, Garrett Mulhall, JJ Clark and Jojo Cardozo, who was on sound. We'll be back with more in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. A beautiful bouquet of flowers. It can say more than words ever could. To celebrate, congratulate, or just let someone know you're thinking of them. At flowers.ie, we know every bouquet is special. So every order we receive is hand-picked, arranged with care, and delivered with love across Ireland. We even send a video before it's delivered, so you know it's just right. Say it with flowers at www.flowers.ie. Rated five stars on Trustpilot.